This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. We are going to be joined by Tom Cochran in just a few minutes. And right now we get to look at an institution in the music scene in London, and that is Call the Office, because this week it became known that Call the Office, maker of all kinds of music-related memories, is going to be closing their doors. Joining us right now is Darren Quinn, the owner and a one-time performer at Call the Office. Darren, thanks for being here. Uh, Not a problem. Thank you. Darren, let's talk a little bit about creating that post that you put out. Tell us about what it was like to to hit post or hit send on that. I uh, was kind of uh, <laughs> humming and hawing on doing it, um, you know, beforehand or after the fact. You know, I, I know some of the venues that have closed, it's been more of a posthumous kind of thing where they just, uh, you know, let it be known that that was kind of the end of the road. But, uh Knowing we had a couple of local shows left, I wanted to give people the opportunity to maybe pop by, um, you know, before the last weekend and sort of kind of let it be known what's happening. Um, obviously, the people of the music scene in London, you know, deserve to know, and they they hold the place uh, pretty pretty near and dear. If we were not in a pandemic, would you have had to create that post? Uh, that's a very good question. And one I've been asked a few times, I would say, um, uh, truth be told, I'm not so sure because, uh, there's other issues, uh, surrounding the live music landscape in today's age in terms of, uh, um, like I stated before, like, uh, not getting our insurance renewed was a big, was a big elephant in the room. Um, and that was sort of, an issue back at the beginning of the year before the pandemic. Um, they don't really want to take on these kind of places anymore. Although insurance companies were happy to take our money for decades and, you know, with no claims, you know, when things get a little rocky or the landscape looks a little, you know, risky for them, they, they certainly, you know, don't want to help out. So that was a big problem. Um, so it was just like kind of one thing after another, after another, and then, obviously, a pandemic really just kind of, you know, sealed the deal. You just get too far behind the eight ball where, you know, and then the uncertainty for next year is kind of like, you know, how long can you really just keep feeding the beast? Hmm. Darren Quinn joining us, owner of Call the Office. Darren, take us to your involvement initially with it, because you made the decision to kind of take it over. What was it about Call the Office and that time that, that had you in that position? Well, to be honest, it was nothing that was at all on my radar. I had a, a similar club in Toronto for, for many years, and I had uh, sold it to um, – another proprietor and he actually brought the call the office thing to my attention and said, Hey, you, you know, look what's available. I mean, this place is incredible. And I'm like, yeah, uh, I know. And I love call the office play there many times. I know the history of it. I know what kind of development ground it has been for music in Canada and, and on a major touring circuit. It is one of the things that pops up on almost all itineraries for decades. 
Um, however, I, I hadn't been back to London in decades, and I, I didn't know much about what was happening in London at the time. And, uh, you know, I live a couple hours away, so it was a, it was a bit of a, a travel. But I went there to check it out, and, uh, you know, I, I was instantly, you know, uh, reignited with the walls of history. And and I said, you know what, like, and I couldn't believe how much London had grown, and, and um, it was just, it was it was a great vibe in the city. And people seem to really have a lot of, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very music and arts mecca in Ontario. So, uh, you know, I kind of cut the bug right away and wanted to get in. Well, thanks for doing it because it did give a few more years to call the office. Being someone who performed on that stage, can you take us to what it was like to step out there? It wasn't always the biggest stage, but just being there and, and the atmosphere that would exist for shows. I think uh, I think some of the uh, the newer I guess wave of musicians um, they have a, a different concept of what a major iconic Canadian venue kind of looks like. I mean, when you kind of look at other cities and you look at the venues that have been there for forever, you know, some are gone, some are still there. But if you look at CBGBs, for instance, one of the most well known. I mean, a lot of people who talk how historic it was had never been in there, and if you have, you'd be like. Oh wow! There's nothing impressive about this. It's kind of a dump, right? It's a dive bar and or whatever. But it doesn't matter about the size of the stage, and you know, you know, there's there's all these fancy new corporate venues with all the bells and whistles and the beautiful band rooms and you know and this and that. But just when you go in to call the office, you know, it's a very warm sounding room. Um, it, it may not have the best layout, you know. Certainly, it was an old tavern and hotel, you know, sort of hybrid. Um, but you can't go in that room and not just feel the history. You know, it's really an incredible space. Yeah. Well, everybody's got so many phenomenal memories from it. Darren, thanks so much for spending some time with us. Give us the layout of the weekend. What is happening, just in case, like you say, anybody wants to stop by? Uh, Thursday night, we got some uh, local alternative rock bands, uh, Swear Crow, and a couple other guests. Um, it's $5 to get in. You just got to e-transfer to reserve a spot. Um, limited to 50 people. Tickets are moving pretty quick. And then sun- Saturday night, we have um, 63 Monroe, which is you know an iconic London punk band that has played in that room for decades. And they're closing out the, the weekend. Um, as well so um either or nights it'd be a great time to drop by and kind of just you know see these these local bands which i'm very happy it's local bands playing the last weekend um kind of rock and reminisce you know very fitting darren thanks and keep safe we really appreciate the time thanks i appreciate it as well take care that's darren quinn from call the office so this weekend is the last weekend of Call the Office. And as Darren says, even if it wasn't a pandemic, there were other issues that were making things pretty challenging for a place that relied on live music. It is kind of a sad day when you think about Call the Office closing. And as Darren Quinn pointed out, this wasn't necessarily just pandemic related where they had a lot of challenges going on and insurance was one of them. When you say, hey, we're bringing in live bands a lot and insurance companies will say, okay, well, there's added risk there. So here are your premiums. 
that becomes a challenge at times. You think about all the places that you could go to for live music in London over the years. Call the office certainly is is one of the easiest places to identify, but you think back, remember when GTs was in London? They would have all kinds of local bands, sometimes cover bands, sometimes bands that would do their own stuff. Ichabods would have, and of course, the Spoke. Spoke still has Rick McGee. We need, you know what? We need to have Rick McGee on London Live at some point because he has spanned now generations. When I was at Western, I used to go and see Rick McGee. I have a daughter who's at Western right now. She goes to see Rick McGee. Rick, you're amazing. So there is still great live music happening, but it's a matter of you know finding those opportunities. And anymore, you look at Darren, describe what this weekend is like. You do have to e-transfer for your ticket. You do have to reserve a space. You've got 50 people there to be socially distanced inside, sitting down, all that kind of thing. So it's not the same concert experience. There will not be a mosh pit growing in front of the stage. And you've probably been inside Call the Office when uh, when when there's been a mosh pit or two, right? At least if you've been there in the last 20 years. Joining us right now is a man who has done everything there is to do in music, Canadian Music Hall of Fame member, Order of Canada, Canada's Walk of Fame, and has performed here in London a lot as well as everywhere you could think of around the world. Please welcome to London Live, Tom Cochran. Tom, it's great to have you here. Hey, Mike, it's my pleasure, buddy, and I hope uh, hope you're doing well and everybody in London's doing well. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's strange times for sure, you know what? started as a, what, what a lot of us thought was a sprint back in the spring to get through this has turned into a, a very long marathon but so we're trying to get through it and I, I feel for a lot of the uh, small businesses in particular restaurants and so on that are in the red zones right now but uh, we do what we can there's a light at the end of this long dark tunnel uh, you know which we try the vaccine so we just got to hang on till there. And then, and, uh, you know, I think a lot of people, uh, Mike, not to get, you know, cut you off. Cause I know you probably have some salient questions about, you know, about playing in these, in this strange times, but, you know, we have to remember that, that, that a big consideration is the hospitals and, and the healthcare workers being overwhelmed. And, and a lot of us don't see that day in and day out, but you know, our hospitals systems are taxed, you know, anybody that's been to emergency over the last few years knows that even without the pandemic, you know, it's it, it, it's sometimes a bit of a gridlock depending on which hospital you go into. It's it's tough. So you can you can imagine what the situation is like with this, with ICUs, you know, getting to a certain point where they have to worry about that. I mean, we, we can't afford to have people out in the cold, in tents and triage and things of that nature. So you know. We, and that's a big part of it. So people are wondering, well, why the lockdown? Well, that's that's a big part of it, you know, I would imagine, right? Well, you make great points. And the idea that it is a marathon, can you imagine being a healthcare worker? And sure, we know, you know, we all know at least one healthcare worker, but can you imagine the marathon that they're through right now where if you have a, a company that says, hey, we've got to make sure everybody is getting through this. Okay, make sure you take some time off. They haven't had that chance. They haven't had that opportunity. No. And yet here we are. You know, we don't have a big job to do. We have a job to do, but we can make their lives a whole lot easier if we do it. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's that's the point, you know, and I know there's a lot of deniers about the, the mask, but, you know, is it OK, let's just assume that they're not as effective. Some people like to say they're they're not. OK, let's assume that for a second. I don't believe that. But let's assume that that if, if there's a chance it's cutting back on transmission of the virus, either either way, then just wear the friggin mask into a grocery store, or into the shoppers, drug mart or wherever you're going. It's not that big a deal. And sanitize your hands and wash your hands like it's not that big a deal. Right. We don't have a hard job. We just have a job, and uh, yeah. that's what it takes. And you know what? If, if you've ever gone public skating and worn a hockey helmet, it's a whole lot less comfortable than wearing a mask, to tell you the truth. <laughs> or, you know, you run around with a football exactly. helmet on. Eh, this, it, it actually it, it kind of feels like that. It, it's almost yeah. comforting if you allow it to be. We're sure, talking with Tom like Cochran. I've never been crazy about putting seatbelts on in the car, but it's, it's, it's a law, and, and we do it. So what the heck? That's it. Well, you are going to get us through this, and thank you for doing that, because you've got a show coming up on December the 19th that is a part of SessionsLive.com that we can get tickets to, because you know what? You've got so much great stuff you can play. Tickets are only 20 bucks Canadian. You can get VIP tickets as well, so go to SessionsLive.com slash Tom Cochran, and you can find out about that. How we've been talking this half hour about live music is called the office is kind of calling it quits. And it's one of those icons for, you know, smaller bands, growing bands, even big bands to come in and play. How much are you missing the atmosphere of, of live music right now? Oh, it, it, incredibly. Like it's, it's um, a big part of me is, is, is been missing. And this definitely wasn't my idea of how I wanted to retire, but you know, I'm surviving okay. I worry about a lot of the other, you know, my guys and my crew. And, you know, we haven't played as a band since uh, the middle of December last year, which is phenomenal. That's the longest any of us have gone by a long shot, you know, in, 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 without performing on stage. So it's it's left a con, you know, incredible void that way, as well as obviously a, a, an incredible void financially for a lot of uh, tech people and, and bands and, and crew and so on. And in being able to play right now, we're talking about December the 19th. That's still not you in front of all kinds of fans and the same experience no. with the, the set list and with the checks and all the stuff that goes on and kind of a regular routine of of playing playing music. Tell us a little bit about what that's going to be like, though, because it's still going to be you. It's still going to be you and Red Rider, and it's still going to be what you guys do best. It is. And, you know, the, the problem is, you know, I, I, you get into uh, camera angles and all that stuff, and how much does that particular jurisdiction, this being Belleville, and we decided on Belleville because Mark has got a wonderful theater there and a setup. Mark Rashad's a dear friend. And it's also in a yellow zone, so uh, relatively low infection rate out in that area of Ontario. So that's why we chose it, and he's he's well equipped to to handle this with cameras and that. But you know, it, the weird considerations, Mike, are things like you know, I like close up angles, for instance, or Jonesy and I will like to sing on the same mic once in a while. You know, there's certain songs that that that, that and, you know we can't do some of that stuff, right? Because people would be watching out there, be going, well. Why these guys think they're exempt from doing that, or it may not even be allowed in that particular jurisdiction. So we've got to keep in mind social distancing. And obviously we're, we're again, we picked 
Belleville because we knew we could we could get a small crowd in there of fifty, and so we're gonna we're gonna do that, and we got tickets on sale for that, and so it, but it's not the same obviously as playing for a full theater and and having people stand up and and come closer to the stage perhaps at the end of the show, but it it is what we have right now, so we're gonna do it, and I'm excited about being able to play with my guys and and about be with to be with my people for uh, that evening and two evenings because we'll come in and rehearse the night before. But, boy, there's all these considerations that you forgot about. And then you, you get in the heat in the moment and you want to sing on the, on the mic with I want to go over with Kenny and kind of hear what he's doing, get up close to what he's doing on the steel guitar, which the stuff he plays is magnificent sometimes. It really inspires me. And we got to be cognizant of that and, and cognizant about uh, – uh, following the rules and setting a good example on stage. But with that said, we're going to, we're going to really put on a good show. And we're going to put a lot of energy and that's what we, uh, what we've always done. And we're going to do that again. Everybody's rehearsing. I think Jonesy's got his bass set up at home and he's working on his stuff. So it's, it's, you know, it's tough, but, but we're, we're lucky to be able to get, get out and do it. And, and it's, it's a good time of year to do it as well. It's around Christmas and that. So we're, we're um we're just we're we're going to make the best of it and we're going to going to give a darn good show. We're talking with Tom Cochran. That show comes up Saturday, December nineteenth, eight o'clock. Sessionslive.com. You can go to sessionslive.com/slash Tom Cochran. Find out all the info you need. Get your tickets. All that sort of thing. Tom, you look back and and. I hate hearing you use the word retire, and it's a good thing musicians never do that now. But in in you know using that word, what do you anticipate that will be like for you for you know the next little while? Are we still going to see you pop up in places like this? <laughs> I, Mike, to, to tell you the truth, I remember my my dear old dad told me way back in the day. He said Tote was my nickname. Tote. He said, Where's that come you, from? It, I used to be a tote bag because my dad's my biggest biggest hero you know so i used to follow him around he said you're like a tote bag you know <laughs> you follow me. so he called me tote and and he said to me he said you know tom he said if you can find out what you do well you're a lucky man and and, and do it and enjoy doing it if you can find out what you do well and in fact it's your hobby or whatever you can make a living at and, and god's smiling on you so i feel really lucky to be able to do what i do and i guess the short answer to what you're, you're saying is I'll never give it up as long as I can, I can perform as long as I can keep doing it. I'll, I'll keep doing it. Um, but obviously I think you, 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 as you've been doing, I've been doing it a long time and I'm not a young guy, obviously one of the senior guys on the scene, you know, there with Randy Bachman and, and with my good buddy, Burton Cummings and a light put still out doing it, but we're, uh, you know, Cuddy and the boys as well. But, you know, I'm one of the, the, the elder statesmen, I guess. But, you know, we still bring a lot of energy to it. I remember playing with Springsteen a few years ago. And, and uh, you know, you just say, like, Bruce is like, he's like a 15-year-old playing in the garage with his buddies. And that's how I feel, you know. That's how I try to bring that energy, that, that, that you know. And, and it, it transports you back. And the adrenaline and the energy of it just makes you feel young when you're up there. It, feel, it feels timeless. So, I'll keep doing it, and I, I, as long as people want me to do it and people are enjoying it, I'll keep doing it. Heck, I'll, I'll and I'll be doing it around a campfire if I have to, you know, for friends. But you know, it's nice to be able to to do real shows and have people show up and they appreciate it and they tell you good things like, you know, man, your music got me through some really tough times, and that stuff, Mike, means more to me than anything. You know, when people say that song, you know, Big League. 
really got me through some tough times. Or even it got my, we used to play it before games and it got the team pumped up. You know, I remember the late great Pat Quinn used to play it for the Canucks before, before games in, in out West. And, you know, that kind of stuff is, is very cool. And then when people say that song got, got me through a really, really tough time, you know, when I had a breakup or maybe I was going through a sickness or something. And, and so uh, I feel very privileged that the music can help inspire people that way. And, and uh, so I'll, I'll keep doing it as long as I can, you know, as long as people feel that way about, about the songs. Well, that is great to hear, Tom. It's been great talking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time out. Remember, Saturday, December 19th, get your tickets now so that you can all enjoy what Tom Cochran and Red Rider do. Keep safe, and uh, we'll keep doing what we're supposed to do, and pretty soon you'll be in front of those live audiences again, and uh, we'll all be able to enjoy it in the same room. All right, brother. You you know we will, and hopefully by next summer that'll be the case, and, and I'm certainly looking forward to getting back to London. I've got a big history there. My cousin was like a brother and he grew up there. And so I spent a lot of time down in London going to the seeps. We, I played at the seeps as an acoustic artist. I played at Joe cools, you know, Mike Smith's a good friend of mine. And so, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting back to London. Can't wait to have you, Tom. Thanks. All right. All right my pleasure. That's Tom Cochran. As far as interesting conversations go, one began yesterday on London Live when we were talking about medical ethics and the ethics of being able to learn about your health and what you could be carrying in your genetic makeup or what your children could be carrying or your future children could be carrying in their genetic makeup. And that's something that we looked at almost from a medical perspective yesterday, but it prompted so much more. It prompted maybe a legal discussion about this. And we are lucky enough to have someone who can assist us with that. Jacob Shelley is an assistant professor in the School of Health Science at Western University with expertise at the intersection of health Law and ethics. There is no better person to be talking to about this. We are joined right now by Professor Shelley. Professor Shelley, how are you? I am well. Thank you for having me today. Well, thanks so much for being here. Um, We've got the ability to test for a growing number of conditions before birth. If if we're to look at kind of how that does intersect at that point that you are so familiar with, where we bring together health and law and ethics. How really is, is that intersection going right now? Well, this, this is a, a fascinating question. You've already alluded to it a little bit. Um, one of the, the real interesting things that arises at this intersection is the, the difference in values and the, com- the competing rights that might actually arise um, in particular viewpoints from, uh, for example, those individuals that might be living with the disabilities or the diseases that are being screened for. And so it, it does bring up a lot of really, really interesting questions where there's not clear answers, to be honest, all the time. And with unclear answers, uh, we kind of turn and figure out, you know, which direction things are going to go in. The law looks at precedent. Medicine looks at the scientific data that comes out. If we were maybe to, to kind of pinpoint, would it come out to conditions that we could test for before birth and information that we would gather 
after birth? Do we do we have that roadmap yet? Yeah. So what arises is actually uh, before birth, it's the interest of the the pregnant woman who actually prevails. That the 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 mother carrying the child, it's her rights, it's her interest. But once uh, a child is born, then we have a competing claim by the child itself. And so we do actually have different approaches to take that are uh, post-birth and pre-birth. So when, when a woman is thinking about having a, a test done to determine um, whether or not her, the child she's carrying has a genetic condition, that's entirely her decision. When uh, a baby is born, the, the mother or the parents become decision makers on behalf of that child, but that child's interests still prevail. Um, and so it does change the narrative and it changes our approach and, and how we think about the interests at play. And so post-birth uh, analysis is important and, and testing is important, but it has different implications, uh, particularly given that um, the prenatal testing does give rise to the potential, and this is the concern for, for a termination of a pregnancy by, by a woman uh, if they think that the prognosis is not well or not good. So... And we can look at any number of examples. There was a piece that was written in The Atlantic not too long ago citing Denmark and a test for Down syndrome. And it looked at the fact that of the women who were pregnant who found out that their child was was basically going to be born with Down syndrome, 95% ended that pregnancy. So, you know, when, when we look at those aspects of, you know, of data that has been around for a while. I mean, a lot of tests have been there for, you know, 20 years or more. Mm-hmm. How do we look at this from a, a legal perspective? Because it doesn't seem like, as you say, we have hard and fast rules about anything. Should we? Yeah, it's, it's, I don't think we should. And there's a couple of real good reasons why we have to be nimble, particularly when we're talking about the, the reproductive rights of women, in that, you know, if we start in the context of, of prenatal screening determining when uh, a woman has the right to to make a decision about their pregnancy, then we are, we're, we're on a, a trending towards a dangerous era where we might want to do that for a variety of other reasons as well. And and ultimately, the law is on the side of of women here that it's their it's their right it's their it's their reproductive right to make a decision about whether or not to to continue with a pregnancy. It doesn't d- diminish the the real ethical problems that do arise, and, and, and rightly so, with making decisions to end a pregnancy based on what is a perceived uh, bad diagnosis. And there's many advocates in, in, in the disability kind of rights um, world that would say that, you know, living with a disability, in this case Down syndrome, isn't, isn't a necessarily a bad thing, but we don't require women to demonstrate that there is um, a good reason behind their decision to end a pregnancy, because that is a right that we have accepted as, as belonging to them, irrespective of our societal views, up until a certain point within the bounds of what is permitted in terms of the termination of a pregnancy. So it, it does open up a, a can of worms to say that in this instance, it's wrong, because we don't, we don't say that you have to have a particular criteria in order to have access to an abortion in Canada. Um, that's, that's a decision that resides solely with, with a woman uh, to to make that decision. So here, it's simply an individual who has decided to to inform themselves with information that may have an impact on their decision as, as the carrier of this child to 
to continue and or to terminate that, that pregnancy. We are talking with Professor Jacob Shelley, Assistant Professor in the School of Health Science at Western University. And uh, Professor Shelley talks health, law, and ethics, and that's kind of what we're looking at right now. When we look at things like genetic testing, could we see a time when all tests are just administered? Hey, we have these available. We can test and know whether or not this either child that is still in utero could have something that that in their life develops based on their genetic makeup or test after birth? Could we see a time when they just say, here's all the tests, we'll tell you how they come out? Yeah, I think it's, it's possible. But that being said, when I started law school back in the early 2000s, this was a discussion then about the idea of designer babies and that genetic testing would allow for individuals to partic- uh, choose particular traits or characteristics of their children. And we haven't seen that come to fruition yet for a variety of reasons in that uh, much of the genetic testing we do is is not necessarily as determinative as uh, sometimes is portrayed. There's a lot of hype around what genetic makeup can tell us. There are very clear uh, indications in the case here of testing for Down syndrome, for example, but many things aren't as clear and we don't necessarily know the genetic pathway to be able to say this will allow for you know someone that's taller or shorter. Um, but we, we do address this in, in many contexts because there are communities, for example, in the deaf community, there, there are those that advocate for deaf parents to have deaf children and want to screen to ensure that their children belong to their community. So this is not just science fiction, but I don't think we're at a point yet where the science is there. Will we get there is another question. And, and in all likelihood, in time, we will have better and better testing. And, and so it is important that we think through this at this point in time to ensure that we, we know how to address um, these kinds of growing concerns. But I, I think there will be and there has been um, uh, guidance and ethical frameworks and, and legal frameworks put in place, uh, not just in Canada, but in, in other jurisdictions to ensure that the kind of selective um, testing that might be socially unacceptable um, isn't allowed. But that raises the question of what's acceptable. And that's a, you know, there are many that think what's happening in Denmark might be, uh, might be a problem in that they're eliminating an entire category of individuals based on a preconceived notion of living with Down syndrome being a bad thing. And and that, that is a a really tough decision uh, for a parent to make. And in in that article, uh, there are parents to talk about kind of the grief that they that they had to go through in making that kind of decision. And I think if, if it's that difficult with a, a condition that is going to be challenging uh, at the very least and that will have implications for the child, I think the likelihood of, of many of us in, in society deciding that we will make you know, nuanced decisions about other characteristics, it's likely not going to come to fruition. Um, it might be more of, of the the science fiction um, space than, than reality, but it is potential. There's a possibility of this uh, that we ought to be uh, at least talking about. So it's good that you're, that you're raising it. Well, Professor Shelley, thank you for being on the other end of raising that because we can ask all the questions in the world. If there's no one there to answer them, uh, we don't get very far. We could even take this in a whole lot of other directions. We'll have to continue our conversation at another time and, and maybe get into things like insurance discrimination or you know who looks after the information that is 
picked up on, you know, whatever test we take and, and where does that go and how many people have access to it. And it does open up a whole lot of doors and windows. We really appreciate the insight today. Please keep safe and have a great afternoon. Thank you for having me. That is Professor Jacob Shelley from Western University. He is an assistant professor in the School of Health Science and deals with health, law, and ethics, right where they all intersect. And as we get more science providing more ways to test and more ways to identify genes, you look at the research that's being go- that's, that's going on to identify genes and say, if you are a carrier of this, then this. This could happen, or be on the lookout for this, or you're, you're susceptible to this disease, this disorder. We're going to have that available in greater and greater numbers for more and more things. And there is science going on right now trying to find cures. And the idea is to identify a gene and then figure out how to fix it in the human body, maybe using something like CRISPR, which is genetic splicing. So when we get into doing that, I mean, we've already seen CRISPR babies in China and stories of CRISPR babies. We've talked at length about that where you can say, yeah, I want my baby to uh, look like this or have this. So it doesn't come down just to medicine. All of a sudden, how do you stop the health science side of it and avoid getting into the designer baby side of it where is that blurred and blended gray line uh yeah see see so this is a conversation to certainly continue to have you've been listening to the london live podcast catch the show live on weekdays from one to three 